At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Let's think about new ways to support organizations that are organically part of the community that are run by Black, Indigenous, people of color, as opposed to always thinking about what's the easiest and biggest organization we can work with. How do we have a hybrid approach where we're saying the big efforts that support 60,000 people a week are really important, and so are the ones that support very specific communities. Welcome to At Home on Air. My name is Susie Stadler. I am the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, who is hosting At Home on Air. At Home with Growing Older is an interdisciplinary and intergenerational learning community on aging. We have been around since 2009. And like many other people, we switched to online forums last year. And I am especially pleased to welcome Shireen McSpaden and Charmaine Yi tonight, and also would like to introduce Mikiko Huang, who is the producer of tonight's program. Hello, everyone. We're pleased to have Shireen McSpaden as our featured guest and Jarmin Ye, who's going to be our moderator. The topic is thinking global, acting local how age and disability friendly San Francisco is strengthening the community safety net. Shireen is the executive director of the San Francisco Department of Disability and Aging Services, part of the Human Services Agency of San Francisco. And in 2018, DOS issued an action plan for an age and disability friendly SF so under her leadership, this plan has been going forward. Jarman is an assistant professor at the Institute for Health and Aging in the School of Nursing at UCSF. Jarman researches the lived experiences of older adults and evaluates dementia training programs for caregivers and providers. We're very excited for our audience to learn more about the Age and Disability Friendly SF and the progress on this on the ground effort and how to help make our communities more age and disability friendly. Such a safety net seems really all the more critical given the pressures and challenges exacerbated by the pandemic that we're all living through. So I hope you will come away with a lot of insight from our conversation. Thank you, Susie and Makiko, for hosting and organizing and for inviting me to be in conversation with Shereen McSpadden about this very interesting topic. For those at home who may not be familiar with age-friendly, I'll just provide a bit of context. So this idea of age-friendly initiatives started around the 90s, and then it really became a global movement in 2007 when the World Health Organization created a guide to help cities and communities improve their social and physical environments for an aging population. 
And the effort has grown exponentially over the years. And today, over 1,100 different cities and communities in 44 different countries around the world participate in the World Health Organization's global network of age-friendly cities. And San Francisco is a participating city in this global network. And then in the United States, AARP also helps to oversee and sort of organize this age-friendly movement. So that's going to be the focus of our conversation, thinking global, but really acting local. So my first question, Shreen, is just, can you give us a bit of history about how San Francisco became involved in this global movement and why it's important? Sure. And thank you, Jarman. And thanks for being here, everyone. I just want to give a shout out to Jarman. She's an, an amazing researcher, instructor, educator, and we go back a long way. It's nice to see you, Jarman, and how your career has rolled out. One of the things that we heard when we first started thinking about age-friendly work in San Francisco, I know I was really excited. And I wasn't, at the time, the director of our department, but was super excited because I think a lot of us who've been working in this field for many years have been waiting for moments like this where we realize that there is movement and there are people who think like us and who are saying, hey, wait a minute, we need our communities to be prepared for older people. We need our communities to prepare for the age wave that we're experiencing. And we need to make sure that cities and municipalities and rural areas are really there for people who need services and who need to engage in community. Back in 2014, Mayor Ed Lee, our mayor at the time, wrote to the World Health Organization and said that San Francisco wanted to be designated as an age-friendly city. One of the things that we did in addition to that, though, because we had been already kind of moving toward an integration of abilities, disability and aging together, we wanted to make our plan really disability and aging-friendly and think about San Francisco as a disability and aging friendly city. The reason for that is we know that so many of the issues that older people have and experience are very similar to what people with disabilities of all ages experience. We wanted to focus on the integration of those things. There are some sayings like if it's child friendly, it's family friendly. If it's age friendly, it's family friendly. If it's disability friendly, it's child friendly. All of these things kind of go together. And so while we wanted to focus on these two populations, because that's what we do, we knew that we would be making San Francisco a better place by focusing on this. And we knew we'd be making it better for everyone. So I, I think that's how we got started, Jarman. Thank you so much. And Makiko had mentioned in 2018, the city put out an action plan for an age and disability friendly San Francisco. Can you sort of let us know what the priorities were that came out of the development of the action plan and the progress that was made to it, at least up until the pandemic. Yeah, we wanted to be really inclusive in our process. We wanted to think about everyone who should have a say in this plan, who in San Francisco really represents people with disabilities from an organizational perspective, from a personal perspective, from a lived experience perspective. We wanted to think about the intersectionality of race and age and all of those things. We pulled together a group of people who represented a broad spectrum of interests and brought those people into one place. At the time we could meet in person, which was super helpful. We started figuring out what it was that we wanted to focus on. And fortunately, the World Health Organization and then AARP later really laid out a lot of what they call domains that we were able to use. And there are things like community support and health services, engagement and inclusion, 
thinking about technology, housing, they're broad domains. And we ended up choosing eight of those domains. And then the group worked to figure out what do we want to do within these domains? One of the things that this process lays out for you is there's a way to think about doing an assessment of where you are. So we started thinking about asset mapping in San Francisco. What are we already doing that's actually positive and good around these areas and these domains? And what are things that we're working on that we could track over time? We started doing that process and thinking through, okay, we have these eight domains. We have a project leader who really worked with us by doing a ton of research in between each meeting that we had. And she gave us this full analysis of what was happening in the domain, what other cities were doing with respect to their age-friendly work. What are we doing in San Francisco so that we could all have similar knowledge about what San Francisco was already doing and good at in certain areas. And then she also laid out gaps for us. We were able to take each domain and say, okay, this is where our strengths lie. This is what we've already done. This is where some gaps are. This is work that's happening that we could track over time to make sure that San Francisco's age and disability friendly. We went from those eight domains and said with each of those, let's come up with some recommendations about things that we could look at and that we could do some research on or follow over time. We came up with more than 200 recommendations, which was way too many. So then we went through a whole process where we did that kind of sticky wall thing where, you know, you put a sticker on the thing that you think is most important. And we basically voted and finally got down to about 24 recommendations those are the things that went into our action plan that we ultimately ended up following. And that was the backbone of our action plan for San Francisco for the period of time that we were looking at. And the period of time was eight, 2018 to 2021. So we're kind of wrapping up now that three-year period. That's amazing. I mean, what an inclusive process and a strengths-based approach, which is fantastic. And I suspect the pandemic has thrown a big monkey wrench into things as it's upended almost every aspect of life as we know it. So I wanted to ask, with how devastating the pandemic's been, were there any blind spots that were realized or new opportunities that emerged because of the pandemic for the age and and disability-friendly work that you're doing? Yes, absolutely. I think we've all learned so much over this last year. And what we realized initially was that the challenges for older people and people with disabilities in San Francisco were just laid bare with COVID. The things that we think about all the time, like isolation and loneliness, accessibility for services, equity, these things all of a sudden were highlighted for us. One of the things we did before COVID, and it was actually one of the action plan items, was we had a big campaign to focus on ageism in San Francisco. We did a big public campaign, and some of you who live in San Francisco may have seen our billboards around. This wasn't just our department. This was a community effort. We worked really hard on it. We were very proud of it. We had a number of our stars who are older adults in San Francisco who represented the diversity of San Francisco. We're talking about how certain attributes never get old. We talked about creativity never gets old and intelligence never gets old and kindness never gets old. And we got some really great feedback on that. And then COVID hit. One of the first things that was kind of a stark reality during COVID was that the California crisis care guidelines basically came out and said, we need to deprioritize older people. We need to deprioritize people with certain disabilities because 
older people have lived their lives already and people with disabilities may not make it. And this is my opinion, but I found that the first write-up of the crisis care guidelines very offensive and actually not based in science. There were a number of people who fought back against that and now they've changed. It's a very different picture today in California with that particular issue. But I think that's an example of how we had to shift and say, how do we take what we're thinking about with fighting ageism and turn it into something that's COVID focused? We saw during COVID also something that was happening before COVID, but how stark food insecurity is for people how very basic. And yet we had to jump into action to really deal with food insecurity because not only did we have people who were probably food insecure before in San Francisco, we also have a very robust network of services. And even with all of that, we realized there were people who were still hungry, who are older and who are experiencing disability, who couldn't get out. And we had to jump into action to address that. Also, one of the domains we looked at is community engagement. And yet at the beginning of COVID, and actually this is still really a serious issue, is older adults and people with disabilities are isolated, are experiencing loneliness, are experiencing depression, are really experiencing a lot of hopelessness. And so again, we as a community have worked in many ways to try to address those issues, supporting our community organizations to pivot their engagement practices so that they're doing more digital and online programming, that they're making more phone calls, that they're doing contactless visits. We've really tried to shift and support those things during COVID. It's really incredible. And especially the isolation piece that we've all experienced much more of in the last 12 months and the increase of using digital mediums to connect with each other and closing that digital divide has been a big lift for many organizations who have been serving older adults in the community. Just in this last year, anti-racism and racial justice have been really thrust into the forefront of public consciousness. And I wanted to ask how the age and disability friendly effort seeks to address structural inequities such as racism along with ageism and ableism. So I think as we've started thinking through each issue as an age and disability friendly work group and now implementation group, we have actually asked ourselves, how are we using an equity lens every single time we think about one of these domains and the goals that we initially set for ourselves? And what does that look like? For example, one of the domains is resiliency and emergency preparedness. That really became a big issue in this last year as the department head for the Department of Disability and Aging Services, but also as somebody who's been deployed and working very, very hard on the COVID command response and as the leader of the COVID emergency food response for some time now. One of the things we do literally every day is ask ourselves, okay, how is this affecting the communities that are most affected by COVID? Whether it's because they're older adults who are more likely to die of COVID or become seriously ill, and how do we make sure that then they're safe? And we're going through the safety checklist, everything that we are doing, also thinking about how certain communities aren't accessing food sources as easily or that they're more isolated. So what are we doing about that? We've done a lot, lot, lot of reaching out to communities. I mean, for me, over this last year, I've had three or four community-focused meetings a week, working closely with our board of supervisors in various communities, meeting with their constituents. And sometimes they've done very specific meetings. For instance, Supervisor Safai in District 11 said, I'm going to have a community meeting just for our Black African-American community members who are really concerned. One of a number of department heads 
who was there said, this is definitely a focus for us. These are things that we're doing as a department. Because of that meeting, we're now saying, let's think about new ways to support organizations that are organically part of the community that are run by Black, Indigenous people of color, as opposed to always thinking about what's the easiest and biggest organization we can work with? How are we supporting community efforts that are organic? Again, a number of communities came forward and started doing a ton of work on their own without funding just to support their own communities and really think about what is it we need to do because we have to step up for ourselves. And we as a city are now saying, how do we support those efforts? You know, they may not be the big organizations that we worked with before, they may not be the food bank, which is also really important, but the community effort and the last mile work that a number of our communities do ensure that people get the resources they need. We're trying to figure out how do we have a hybrid approach where we're saying the big efforts that, and again, just to use food as an example, the big efforts that support 60,000 people a week are really important. And so are the ones that support very specific communities, like people who eat halal food, for instance, and how are we making sure that we're thinking about the, the needs of those folks and getting them the resources they need. We've had a lot of experience with this over the year, and I personally feel grateful for it because while I think it's easy to think through what we do in the regular world, this has thrown us into a brand new conversation. Even in my own personal life, certainly in my own family, I come from a multiracial family. I've certainly seen how things are different for different members of my family. We all walk around in San Francisco and San Francisco is a tough place, but this has really shown me even more deeply what different communities experience and how we can do a better job of serving our constituents. Absolutely. I think the, the hybrid approach is a really important strategy. It's great to hear how innovation can be leveraged in that way. I wanted to zoom out a little bit to the state level. California recently released a state plan on aging in January, and I wanted to ask what synergies you see between that plan and the San Francisco Age and Disability Friendly Action Plan. I guess I feel the same way about the master plan that I initially did about our age and disability friendly work. And that's that it's so exciting that the governor said aging is important, that we need to think about the needs of older Californians in San Francisco. The stats I saw yesterday are that close to 22% of our population right now is 60 and older. But then when you add people with disabilities who are 18 and older on, it's over 25%. And we're slated to be 30% of the population by 2030. And that has not changed. It's just really great that our governor is thinking about that and that he has said to his teams, you really need to work together to figure out what this means. Where I see the parallels are that one of the things that the age-friendly movement is meant to do is to bring partners together we brought people together to come up with the plan. One of the things that kind of forces you to do is work with other departments. And that's some of the things that we laid out, we can't do on our own. Older adults should have affordable housing. I mean, that's a lofty goal because, you know, San Francisco's challenged that way, but it makes us have to work as a department and as a community and as nonprofit providers and for-profit and consumers with the various departments that need to be in the room for those conversations. So the planning department, the homeless department, the controller's office, the mayor's office on disability, et cetera. And it's the same at the state level. I've really seen something brand new 
as somebody who's worked with the state for many years, I've never seen the departments come together on something like this. And the governor really brought together his cabinet. He brought together his departments and said, this is going to happen. I am starting, and a lot of people are starting to see those departments come together to support this work. And the state ultimately is thinking about making California an age-friendly state. And a lot of the work in the master plan will go toward that. There are goals, they may be lofty, but it means that we're working on it as a state. Like every older adult will have choice in housing, will have access to affordable housing. There are things in there about the long-term care system and making it affordable. Making aging affordable is a big piece of this. Without a plan, you can't get there. And a very exciting thing about having the plan is that we're all going to be working on this. I mean, it won't happen tomorrow and we're far from perfect, but it means that there's some attention. It means the governor thinks it's important and therefore his department heads do because it's the direction that he wants to take us as a state. It's definitely exciting to know that leadership at the state level recognize aging to be so important and how aging issues do cross all these departments that need to work together moving forward. That's really exciting. I wanted to ask if you have recommendations for how folks at home can get involved in the age and disability friendly effort, what they can do in their own neighborhoods or communities. Well, if people are in San Francisco, we would love to have you on our implementation work group. We welcome all members. We love to have more voices. And, and so that's, I guess, the first thing. The second is there are a lot of efforts going on in every neighborhood in San Francisco. There are a number of organizations that are doing community work in various neighborhoods. If you wanted to engage in your own neighborhood and didn't want to be part of the citywide effort, there are a number of ways to be engaged. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at at homewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Shereen, I think people are really, really appreciative of the innovative work and the work that's been inclusive in the age and disability friendly uh-huh. efforts. People do have questions, so I wanted to try to get to as, as many of them as I can. You did speak about some of this a little bit, but one person asked about examples of how specifically some of the work of age disability friendly in those domains has impacted older adults. You mentioned food, social isolation, loneliness, community support, transportation, communication, information technology, employment, economic security, outdoor spaces. Are there any of those that you might give an example to folks on how you feel they're impacting older adults in San Francisco? Yes, absolutely. Just to give you an idea, so transportation, we prioritize certain goals that said basically residents would have the information and tools they need to make informed travel choices, that we would help to encourage active transportation like bicycling and walking. And of course, that means that we're working with other departments to think about how to support that through policies, design, and programs, working on private transportation policies or programs that make for accessibility and equity. So especially when you think about things like these shared rides, So we've done a lot of work through Muni. We've used our partners such as TransDev and Muni, DOS. There's a mobility management work group and really creating a collaboration that looks at equity, thinks about the needs of people with disabilities and older adults in every single move that that work group does or every single recommendation that it makes back to the larger transportation group. 
is really thought out carefully. Basically, that's how we give our input, making sure that we're part of those plans and inserting ourselves. And I think that's really what this work is about. It's making sure that the people who have the best interests of people with disabilities and older people at heart are saying, don't forget this population. We need to think these things through. Right now, we've shifted one of them that's focused on outdoor spaces and buildings. We initially said that the goals were having a diversity of accessible and clean outdoor public spaces and public right of way, such as sidewalks, should be accessible and inclusive. We were going ahead and working on that one. And that's a good example of how we had to shift a little bit when COVID hit. One of the things that we're dealing with now is there's some controversy over what the city's done with respect to parks. So if you think about JFK in San Francisco, in the middle of Golden Gate Park, they shut it down to cars. I think the park was thinking, this is great for everyone because everyone can enjoy the park car free, kids can enjoy it and it's safer. What then happened was that older people and people with disabilities came out and said, hey, you know what? I was going to the park for my mental health. That's the one time I can get out of the house and I feel safe because I can be away from others. And yet now I can't go because I don't have a way to get there. I don't have a place to park. The Agent Disability Friendly Workgroup has been really involved in that conversation and has been saying, well, wait a minute, let's have a broader conversation that includes older people and people with disabilities. And so I think that's a good example of how we can get involved and how we had to get involved. Shared Spaces program is similar in that it's great on one level because, of course, the city wants to support businesses. Absolutely. And yet there are things that are hazardous for people who use wheelchairs, hazardous for people who don't have the same balance anymore. Trying to get around some of those things has been really challenging. We've had a lot of complaints. And I know there's a question about fall prevention in here. We do have some fall prevention programs at DOS. This isn't something we took on specifically in the Asian Disability Friendly Plan, but it is something we've been addressing through things like this outdoor spaces that are safe for people. So that's great. With a slightly different focus, someone asked about support for very low income folks with behavioral health and mental health disabilities who are older and have disabilities that may include others beyond mental health and just what kind of support is in place for them. So again, I would go to our department and not just our department, but our partnership with the Department of Public Health. We do have some programs that focus on the needs of older people and people with disabilities who are experiencing behavioral health issues for sure. One of them is the Community Living Fund which is a program that's pretty innovative, started in San Francisco and is really focused on making sure that people can live safely at home and providing them with the services that they need, including case management, behavioral health treatment, support, and other services that they need. And we have a number of other programs like that. It's not enough. And I think one of the things that the Department of Public Health is working on right now is trying to revamp the behavioral health system. There's a new behavioral health plan that was put together by the Department of Public Health and they have a new behavioral health director coming on board. We're hoping to work really closely with them to make sure that the needs of older people and people with disabilities are heard. I think people with behavioral health issues are already considered people with disabilities, but to make sure that they're really thinking about older people. And a lot of times the needs are different. There's co-occurring dementia, or there are other things that maybe people don't understand if they haven't worked with older adults. So we will be working very closely on that with them. 
We actually here at, at Home with Growing Older are very familiar with the Community Living Campaign. Marie Jobling is on our board as well and very involved. So yes, it is amazing the work that the Community Living Campaign does. You did touch on some of the racial equity issues and that's fantastic, like how you went into one of the districts and had meeting specifically with African-American members of the community. There has been a lot in the news about anti-Asian uh, violence, and it seems a lot of it has been targeted against older, more vulnerable people. I think it was happening long before the pandemic started, but it seems like people are paying more attention to it with more focus on racial equity in general. Are there things that are being done at the city level in San Francisco? Because it certainly is happening all over the country and notably in the Bay Area. It's horrible. It's really horrible. And we've been hearing a lot of stories about violence perpetrated against older Asian Americans in San Francisco. And it's really heartbreaking that that is happening, that people are choosing to to perpetrate that kind of violence on older adults at all, and particularly the Asian American population where it seems to be centered. We are working with our Asian American service providers to figure out what the right approach is. We have a couple of different things that we're doing right now. One of them is to engage the expertise of our forensic center, which is a partnership between DOS, the DA, the police, Institute on Aging, and others who are really focused on prosecuting elder abuse and making sure that it doesn't happen. Out of that, we also do campaigns to educate people about elder abuse and how it shouldn't happen. We're going to put together a tip sheet for older adults about how to remain safe. And then we've reached out to some other departments. There are some community ambassador programs that will help escort people from home to banks, things like that. And obviously that's the short-term solution. It's not a solution. It's just help for right now. And in the meantime, we're talking about how we might do a big citywide campaign, focusing on the fact that one, this is ageism and two, it's incredibly racist behavior and see if we can get strong community support to speak out against it. So, I mean, there are a number of ways this is being worked on in the city, and I don't want to make it sound like it's only us. It's the supervisors, the mayor, the police, the Office of Civil Rights, a number of people have spoken out about it and are really trying to have the community at large hear how awful and dangerous this is. Well, thank you. That's helpful and reassuring to know that attention is being paid to that. There was some interest in the end ageism campaign, the Reframing Aging SF, and in the images, if you go to endageism.com, you can see some of the images of the billboards that were put up. One person had a reaction to the campaign is not specifically a question to you, but it just is an interesting, noteworthy observation. Rachel mentioned that the wording never gets old in a way is confirming the word old as a negative term. You say it never gets old. She's wondering whether saying in the future, courage is old or creativity is older than the fact of being old is still valued. So it's, it's not really a question, but it's just an interesting comment. That's a great comment. And we actually had tons and tons of conversations about that. We even talked with the Reframing Aging national folks and said, what do you think about this? And they said the same thing at first. Actually, though, it's really provocative and, and it really gets people talking and it gets people saying things like, well, wait a minute. It also is saying that creativity and kindness, those attributes are very human and don't leave us. We did go back and forth with that a lot. We had some great conversations about it and some disagreements. Ultimately, the group that was working on this decided to stick with it. But I can say it has prompted a lot of pretty lively conversation. 
In the future, we would do something different because we wouldn't use that again anyway, but it was interesting. Yeah. Well, the fact that it would spark conversation and help people confront, I think a lot of these things, racism, ageism, ableism, often an individual thinks that they themselves don't suffer from any of that, often trying to take the focus away from people feeling guilty or just thinking about the systems that promote ageism or ableism. If we can spark more conversation and have people engage with that and think, yes, I need to support, you know, anti-ageism or anti-ableism efforts. Sparking that conversation certainly could be very useful. That's great that there were a lot of people involved in the conversation and certainly there was an agreement on everything. It's great for the audience to know that that was part of the conversation. One of the questions was about numbers. Sometimes people don't have a good idea of how many older people are affected by food insecurity or homelessness, perhaps exacerbated by the pandemic in San Francisco? Is there a rough number or percentage of people that your department has seen affected? Recently, 15 to 20% of the overall homeless or underhoused population is made up of older people. So I don't know about the raw numbers, but that's pretty high. The Department of Public Health before COVID said that one in four people in San Francisco were food insecure. They have now adjusted that number to say 37%, so almost 40% of the population yeah. is food insecure. And I would say that, I mean, I'm close to that issue. I've been running the COVID food security work for the last year, and I, that is what I see. It's just incredible food insecurity right now. This is such a staggering number. It's 37% of all people over yeah. 65 no, just total. I don't have the number over 65. I'm just saying this is children, this is families, this is single adults and older people. It's totally yeah. insane. Yeah, it's, it's staggering like and it's ridiculous. Many of us have seen interviews or reports from people across the country who are involved with food banks that people who actually used to be volunteers on the distributed mm -hmm. end are now needing to be recipients of food from the food bank, it seems that this crisis is exacerbated by the pandemic. There's links in the chat about how people can get involved with the Asian Disability Friendly SF Implementation Workgroup. Can I intersperse one mission regarding transportation? I'm not a San Franciscan, but I've heard that, and it's also true for the East Bay, that certain lines of public transportation have been cut because of budget constraints. For many older adults, this is disastrous. Yeah. Is there anything in the works as a solution or as a band-aid? One of the things that's happening as people are starting to come back out is they're starting to put the muni lines back in place and really focusing on things like making sure that people can get to vaccine sites, making sure people can get downtown. We, as an agent disability-friendly work group, will continue to monitor where the challenges are for people. Fortunately, one of the other things that Muni is charged with, just as we all are as departments, is really thinking about equity. They're having the equity plan be part of the overall revamp of Muni. There are a lot of conversations going on in Muni and with other departments, just like there are in our department about how we're serving people to ensure that people are not left out of the ability to get across town or to get to where they need to go. It's obviously hugely complicated given that departments are funded differently. Our department fared very well because we get so much money from the feds and the state. And because we have the Dignity Fund, which was 
approved by the voters. And so we have the ability to pay for all these things. Muni as an enterprise department for the city is more challenged because it does rely a lot on, well, it does rely a lot on federal and state sources, which didn't come in right away, but it also relies heavily on ridership. And so when that went down, they lost a lot of funding. And so it's a very tough battle, but we're all working to make sure that people who need it the most are getting what they need. And we have those conversations with Muni literally weekly. This cross-department collaboration is fantastic. As you mentioned, the Dignity Fund, an amazing achievement and very special in San Francisco. I don't know if everybody knows about this, but can you just briefly say what this is? Sure. We have some really fantastic advocates in San Francisco, as many of you know, who really want to see people with disabilities and older people have the resources they need to age in place and stay at home and get the resources they need to live at home safely. They worked with the city a number of years ago, and I was actually very involved in this. I guess it was 2014, 15, when we first started working to put the Dignity Fund measure on the ballot. And basically what the Dignity Fund does now that it did pass, what it does is it created a baseline of funding for services for people with disabilities and older adults. In good years, adds to that and provides growth to that fund every year. Unfortunately, the last two years, we haven't seen the growth. Well, we didn't see it last year, and I'm assuming we won't see it this year because of COVID. But generally, it's been growing, and it has really provided a number of services that wouldn't have been there before. It's protected the dollars that were in the budget to begin with, and it's administered by our department. We also have a very public process for assessing the need every four years. We go into every district, many, many focus groups. We have open forums and we look at a lot of data before we make the recommendations on how we're going to spend those dollars. But it's been great. And it's something that San Francisco has that basically no other county in California has been really fortunate. There's a lot of conversation about making it a statewide program so that it's guaranteed funding for these services, but that hasn't happened yet. Um, You've talked about how this implementation phase is 2018 to 2021. And folks would love to know about the work continuing after that. So what will happen in the plan in 2022? Now is a great time to get involved. People here today mentioned some things that I saw that we didn't necessarily directly address, but things like how do we make sure everybody has access to grab bars? You're right. Most people can live at home safely. So what does it take to make sure that everybody has that? How do we think about things like falls prevention when we know that falls contribute so much to people spiraling downward and those types of things. Those are things we could actually put into a plan. The domains pretty much cover everything. We have to decide what domains we want and then what our goals are and what we're going to track from 2022 on. So this is the chance to get involved with the new plan. We just are finishing up our assessment of our first period age and disability of San Francisco work, and we're about to enter our new phase. So would love to see people join us. Well, Thank you, Shereen and Jarman. This has been such a wonderful, informative conversation. It was really wonderful for our audience to have an idea of what's happening in San Francisco and about the movement generally. I don't know the details of other Bay Area communities involved with it, but if they aren't as far along or as active, I imagine they will if they haven't already. Yes. And thank you both for the work you're doing. And Karina, I I know you're super busy, so we really appreciate that you are making time for this conversation. This sort of informal conversation sometimes spur ideas and connections, which are really valuable. 
Thank, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you all and have a good evening. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.